Greetings, dear listeners. We had the writer Nick Burns on the show this week to talk broadly about American exceptionalism. What is it about America that's so different, that allows it to succeed, and more importantly, that frustrates attempts to make it more, quote, European? From high-speed rail to the university to foreign policy, European ways of doing things never quite work out the way people think they should. If you're not a paying subscriber, join us at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to part two of the conversation, where we discuss the problems of realism. Stick around for me and Shadi going at it over human rights, with poor Nick caught in the middle. On to the show. I, I, I suspect that won't be the case. Anyway, Nick, uh, as I was saying uh, right before Shadi just logged on here, it's uh, it's really good to have you on the show. Um, you were one of the sort of, I think, um, the best young writers that, that sort of, uh, I, I wouldn't say we discovered you. You came to us. I don't even know how, how you came to the American interest, but I, it was really a pleasure to publish you towards the end of the magazine there. And then with COVID, I, I feel like uh, I, I, you know, it's COVID, the magazine shut down. I, I, I lost track of you and your writing. Um, and it's, uh, it's with great pleasure that I, I, I rediscovered it in the last few um, uh, months, noticed that you're, you're still out there writing and thriving, really. Um, and so, you know, I, I think what, what, what triggered having uh, you on the show with us was... Um, an essay of yours that you wrote recently uh, on your Substack uh, that really, you know, I think Shadi referenced it in one of his essays for Wisdom of Crowds. He and I have like talked about it and we've been just talking in general. It's an ongoing theme uh, here at American Interest about American sort of, Interest? Uh, uh, Wisdom of Crowds. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say at Wisdom of Crowds, it's always been uh, a, a American exceptionalism and sort of, I don't know how, how, you know, despite all of the sort of um, self-loathing that, that um, uh, especially sort of overeducated, Europeanized American elites um, dis- sort of uh, exhibit all the time, how, how nevertheless, you know, there's, um, uh, there's something about America that, that uh, is, is difficult to pin down and um, is, is a source of its kind of endless, restless you know, uh, greatness. I mean, you just can't ever bet against it. I think your essay just captures that beautifully. And we'll, we'll link that for, for listeners who, who may not have yet, um, gotten to it. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, you know, I think there's plenty to talk about, but just, uh, wanted to, to, you know, use this as sort of like a, a broad, uh, uh, set of remarks to just encourage readers to get to know you. And hopefully we can get to know you a little bit in this conversation. Um, Basically, I guess let's just maybe talk about America first. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about like how did that how did that how did that essay come about? What were you what what drove that essay? Yes, yeah, so I was. Um, I've been. Um, uh, or I had been doing a little bit of inquiry into cultural developments in New York City, um, and going to strange parties and talking to strange people. Um, 
What? Like like Curtis Yarvin, right? Am I, am I, am I, <laughs> yes, I, I saw that was. somewhere. You were at some party with Curtis Yarvin, yes. the big neo reactionary thinker. Just to get get on like reader uh, listeners not plugged into the into this to know. Yeah, you were at a party with Curtis Yarvin. I don't know if he's neo reactionary. We can just take out the neo. I don't know. Like reactionary makes me think the French Revolution. <laughs> I think neo is right. That's his. <laughs> anyway, um, go on. That's Nick. his. Uh... Uh, his term, right, is uh, neo-reaction. Neo yeah. Um, yeah, I um, hopefully we won't get too bogged down in, in uh, you know, uh, who went to whose party in, in New York City. I was reminded by very many people um, after a piece that I wrote about um, these uh, New York cultural scenes uh, that New York City is not the same as uh, the United States of America. Um mm. Uh, which is, which is true. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I actually, um, it's not the first time I've, uh, been at the same gathering as, uh, as Curtis Yarvin. I've never, never spoken to him, but, um, he's been haunting various get togethers in, uh, in DC. Um, and I'm sure a lot of places, but I first uh, ran into him in DC and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's something that, um, uh, the author of the Substack, where you probably saw that mention that I was at this gathering, um, Mike Crumpler, uh, uh, Mike or Crumps is he's often known, uh, Crumps and I, uh, have both talked about, um, how it's strange that a lot of the same kind of cultural fascinations, um, including a fascination with the writing of Curtis Yarvin, uh, that were very popular in D.C. during the Trump years uh, are now popular in certain downtown Manhattan circles. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's it's sort of like uh, the center of uh, the the cutting edge of of reactionary thought has moved from from Washington to New York in that time. And it was interesting. I, I just want to yeah, go ahead. I just want to jump in. It was hilarious about that, right? It's because like living in D.C. so much of my life, and at this point, it's always been the fact that that D.C. is about a year and a half behind New York. It's great that in something we're 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 actually leading, and New York is following, even if it is that like the, the fringiest <laughs> of Trumpist neo reactionary thought. Anyway. Yeah, it's a strange, um, it's a strange thing, and in some ways, it kind of um, made me not quite it made me a little behind the curve in some ways that, um, for example, um, some like, a you know, the red scare podcast hosts were talking about Christopher Lash, um, and, and Lash kind of had a moment in, you know, um, uh, in, <laughs> in certain circles in New York where people don't, you know, really read books very frequently, um, too busy going to parties, but, um, he kind of had a moment, uh, people would were like posting him on Instagram and stuff um, in like, I want to say 2020 or so. Um, and my reaction after, um, you know, being in DC when all of the kind of, um, you know, all of the cool young center, right. Um, cool. That is in DC terms, which is to say <laughs> massively uncool um, in New York city terms uh were reading lash and 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 that that whole kind of lash mania had started to wane i think by 2020 in dc everyone was kind of sick of lash i wrote an essay complaining about lash um for law and liberty um in 2019 or 2020 and um then it had this sort of whole second 
second iteration um, it, among very different people. And, and it confused me at first. I was like, didn't we already do this? Um, and the problem is that, you know, it was a very different sort of we who were doing this as in talking about Lash. It was, it had become popular again in a basically totally different circle of people. Um, and yeah. I mean, to, 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 to just like narrow down though, you, the the interesting thing about your writing and about this essay um, is, you know, I to not get like lost in the in the sort of the 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 intricacies of sort of neo reactionary stuff and how that's like switched over to New York, is is this sense in the essay which I really liked is that that um, how do I put it. Uh, I don't know if it's a, maybe even a, a kind of tacit response to both the kind of self-hating of the I call it the the you know the, the cool set of of uh, lefties in New York the the sort of red scare people uh, or that kind of like ironic self-loathing of America but also maybe a rebuke to the kind of you know right wing like modern right wing doubts about America. There's something what I liked about the essay is that it had a kind of um, well, again, for for readers, uh, listeners who haven't read it yet, I mean, it 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 uh, it, it it uses a book that you found by uh, the French postmodern philosopher uh, Baudrillard, who's himself traveling across the United States and making observations about this kind of restlessness of America. And I've always found that kind of writing about America to be most, uh, I think, uh, persuasive and interesting. And it's something that I think Americans themselves are are least likely to remark on. So I don't know. I mean, when you're writing that essay, what was the, what was it? Was it a kind of reaction to pervasive pessimism about America, about how people on both sides, well, both sides, on all sides, or, or at least maybe even like a, a broader pessimism across America about America? Was that sort of the 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 impetus for it? I think the the impetus was was sort of um, it came about because I was trying to persuade other people and also kind of persuade myself that it was worth. Um, sort of following, at least to some extent, um, uh, cultural developments um, in New York City and also in American pop culture generally. Uh, that I that I don't necessarily um, always sort of want to have to pay attention to. You know, I I mostly you know re review books and um, I cover Latin American politics for my day job, um, and uh, I don't always you know, want to think about, um, you know, sort of, uh, fashion trends or for that matter, avant-garde cultural developments in weird internet subcultures or, um, hyper-specific, you know, New York city clicks or, or what have you. But, um, as I was reading this book by Baudrillard, which has so many sparkling comments, um, I, became convinced as I think he tries to argue in the book that um, these kind of manifestations of American culture, um, even if they can be grotesque, um, are in some ways kind of world historically significant. Um, and uh, the tendency to reject them as vulgar um, isn't necessarily uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of totally not based on anything. It, it makes sense to, to want to sort of project them as, as, as vulgar or, or, or something that's not sort of, um, uh, you know, suitable to sophisticated taste, but it, in the end, it, it, it can kind of 
leave you in a bad place because um, it's those grotesque developments that are going to take over the world. Um, and, um, you know, there's there's some great line in, in the book that I quote in the Substack piece that um, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to the effect of, uh, you know, we, and he means in Europe, you know, are a long way behind the, like, absurdity, vulgarity, and stupidity of American culture, its mutational form. Um, and uh, it made me think, uh, and this is also in the piece, but it made me think of, you know, being in, you know, these uh, cafes in Paris or uh, whatever European capital, and they're playing music that, um, you know, uh, that's sort of like indie rock from, um, you know, from the Obama era stuff that has been considered kind of uncool in America for years. And people in New York like to make fun of the French for being obsessed with Williamsburg, Brooklyn, when, um, uh, you know, everyone who uh, would like to seem to be kind of in the know in New York City, you know, has thought that Williamsburg is kind of cringe for, uh, you know, for a decade or something like that. Um, so it was sort of um, an attempt to uh, describe why it might be worth it to pay attention to these developments, even if they seem, you know, uh, silly or, or irritating. Um, but um, in some ways, it's it, it's sort of an argument with myself as well, because uh, um, I uh, I think a lot of people think of me as an Anglophile, um, and I I would say that I have a very sort of ambivalent relationship to uh to england um uh maybe a less ambivalent more positive uh sort of uh image of southern europe and latin america um but um but nick I did, but, let okay, me so i mean we're, uh, yeah, yeah um just yeah, to jump in shoddy. um so i i think just to get down to what i think the fundamental question that you raise in the piece is and what we can talk about some more is that you're actually making the case for america i mean you you debate it with yourself you're having this argument with yourself like many of us do and then in the end you conclude that america is in fact better i'm paraphrasing but um I think the tension, and this is what I liked a lot about your argument, is that on one hand, you're basically saying that America sucks in a particular set of ways. So in <laughs> other words, America, it's not pleasant to live in America. It is, however, pleasant to spend time in Italy um, or, or, um, or Spain or France in the sense that it's more relaxed, leisurely, people have long, endless dinners, they're not rushing to respond to emails for the most part. They're trying to enjoy life and work isn't as central, making money isn't as central because simply put, Europeans don't have as much money. I mean, Europe is still, Western Europe is still poorer than the US um, in, in terms of GDP and GDP per capita. Um, so uh, so that's, that's one side, that's the dark side. And so then um, we might conclude based on that, that if you really care about pleasantness, if you wanna live a pleasant life where enjoying life is at the forefront, uh, Western Europe is probably the better place to live. But then you do a little U-turn where you say, despite all that pleasantness in Europe, you'd still, you still want to be in the US. And it's a, for a very interesting reason. And it's one that I'm a little bit confused about because it's somewhat intangible. 
But basically, what you seem to be saying is that what's great about being in America is that it's it's the center of everything, as you sort of alluded to earlier, and that there's some sort of satisfaction that comes from being present at the creation. That's the phrase that you use. Um, and and I, I, but it leads me to wonder, I mean, I sort of agree, because I mean, I think America is the best country in the world. And, you know, in my, in my Monday note, where I cite you a couple of weeks ago, I, that's how I, that's where I come out that for all of its faults, America is still great, greater, the greatest, whatever. Um, because there's a mess, it's, it's messy, it's contentious, there's conflict, it's, um, it's unwieldy. And that's actually where the creativity and the innovation comes from, that you can't have creativity and innovation without a certain degree of messiness and being all over the place. Um, like a Jackson Pollock painting. I think that's how, what I what I said <laughs> in a previous episode. Um, but how about this? I mean, what does it mean to to be at the center of things? Because that seems to be very, very um, central to your argument. Um, but what is like? That's not tangible, though. Like, can, can, how do we measure that? What does it feel like? And maybe a lot of people don't care about being at the center of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's an interesting point. Of course, a lot of people probably don't care about being at the center of things, um, and um, and it seems fair to say that uh, America isn't, um, you know, isn't for everyone in the same way that that any country, I suppose, isn't isn't for everyone. That that you have to have a kind of uh, certain disposition to um, uh, to feel at home there, but most countries have um uh ways of raising people to um give them the kind of uh dispositions that would make them enjoy life there uh like i think a lot of things about american society are set up to encourage people to um like the things that are available in america and not um not crave the things that that aren't so available uh like you know uh, spritzes on the piazza or, uh, whatever, um, uh, you know, whatever we, we want to sort of choose to describe that, that European pleasantness that I tried to get at in the essay. Um, as for what it means to kind of be, um, you know, present at the creation, I think, um, uh, something I've been thinking about recently is how American states, uh, still kind of function as these interesting, um, you know, the cliche is laboratories of democracy. Um, but in a way there's, there's truth in it that, um, uh, you know, that as, as an interesting thing about having a country that's extremely large, um, but in a certain sense, culturally homogeneous, everyone speaks English. Um, and you know, there's no, um, uh, there, there, there are relatively few sort of bureaucratic and really sort of strongly cultural obstacles to moving from one part of the country to another. You know, unlike say Canada, you wouldn't have to learn French to move from Vancouver to Quebec. Although I don't think you really have to do that, um, despite all the laws that they're putting through. But you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't feel any pressure. You wouldn't be missing out on anything if you you know moved from 
uh, you know, from Santiago de Compostela to, uh, you know, uh, part of Catalonia where most people speak Catalan. You can, you can, you know, you can sort of, uh, move anywhere. And the States, um, you know, especially in, in recent years, uh, have been trying to sort of attract people with a kind of, with different political ideas, right? Um, uh, DeSantis in Florida, uh, Texas, trying to kind of draw migration from, uh, you know, disaffected Californians or people in other part of the country with kind of uh, different, inter- you know, with, with a very sort of, uh, you know, kind of freedom-loving politics, um, uh, you know, low taxes. Uh, it, it's interesting that, you know, I, I can't think of uh, another country in the world that has this kind of open competition. That's a competition um, of kind of contending like models of politics in a way. Um, it's, it's, mm. it's in a way, I mean, it's a funny place in a way it's very um, homogeneous and that can be a little, um, it can kind of get you down a little bit. Um, but in an, another way, it's, it's extremely heterogeneous and it's inexhaustible. Uh, so, so I, I'm sort of still thinking through all of those. All of those I, I like that a lot. Cause I've never thought about it. I, I I would have maybe assumed that there's at least one other country that's sort of like us in this regard, but I think you're right. There isn't a single other country in the world, to my knowledge, that has open competition between um, subunits and also the ease of transportation and and you know changing your residence and so forth between states. That does seem to be pretty unique. Um, well, ease of, ease of transportation, I, uh, you know, we were joking last episode, or not joking, just sort of riffing on Matt Iglesias' uh, recent uh, sort of tear on Twitter, uh, to, you know, comparing how shitty, is, how shitty Europe is compared to the United States. But then today, I think he just, he, he published uh, on his Substack, uh, you know, uh, an attempt to do positive appraisal of Italy, um, having just got, come back from vacation there. And I mean, on, on the transportation, he notes correctly, you know, I mean, that's the one thing you do notice in Europe is how, how easy it is to, you know, get from one part of a country. And these are all much smaller countries, of course, but still it's, it is more pleasant to get around. It's kind of, kind of sucks to get around the United States. And even now air travel is getting so hideous in this country too, you know, like, I mean, they first through, uh, making, uh, air travel affordable it's it's become downright hostile to do it and now after covid it's it's a real okay i just i guess admittedly well taken i guess i just mean like moving from one state to another and using yeah one can move yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah the core of the point is that it's um it's 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 not i mean there are plenty of countries that have um uh you know cultural differences within within their borders right um most countries have significant cultural differences uh, within their borders, especially countries that are kind of older um, than the U.S. or not in the New World. Um, you know, there are huge differences between Northern and Southern Italy, between you know Scotland and England, etc. Um, but that makes it a little more complicated to have kind of direct political competition, like contending political models within within the state. Right? right? It is because those political models adapt themselves to cultural differences. Um, right. I also had, uh, um, I've been thinking about this, uh, I, I haven't seen his latest, um, positive take on Italy. Um, I've taken 
some Italian trains, which are quite useful. But I, I will say that um, uh, I rode to Pompeii from Naples on uh, a train that was more thoroughly covered in graffiti and thoroughly um, kind of decrepit uh, um, than, than any I've seen on the New York City subway um, by mm. far. Of course, um, of course I that find that... Southern Italy, though, that's a thing, right? I mean, that's the other oh, part. Oh, yeah. I find that Southern all Italy is, yeah, like... Um, I don't, I don't right. mind it as long as it gets to the destination. But, but, but you um, know what they say about trains? Uh, Mussolini made them run on time. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I thought you, you guys would just be confused when I said that. But um, this is why. But I was going to make a joke about how do you know? Do you really want to have trains running on time? Because we saw how that worked in you know World War Two. You know, I mean. Well, you know, you know. I let me just add a a, a funny thing. This is. Um, I, I'm trying to think if we actually ever put this in uh, in um, uh, in the American interest and Walter Russell Mead was doing via media, but it's something we talked about a lot. Walter has this theory that um, the surest sign of like modern um, declinism is when uh, elites start talking about putting high speed trains everywhere, <laughs> that it's such a boondoggle. That it's really difficult to, you know, do. They're never economical. They never break even. They're just a suck on 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 resources. And so it would be just a thing. It's like you know the Chinese are boasting about their their high speed trains and and uh, and then you know all the sort of Europhiles and and you know sort of technocratic elites in America are like ooh China's ahead of us because they have high speed trains. Walter would be like no this is the end of China. They but they they're wasting money on high speed trains. I don't know. Well that's but that's an interesting <laughs> hot take. I mean, as a yeah, as a sizzling, it is. I mean, as a Californian, um, I you know I don't even care if it's high speed or not. But I cannot believe you just want to train. I mean, I can believe it. I can believe it. Unfortunately, but it is it is a scandal that we cannot manage to build a train that goes between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Okay, but Nick, that's that's exactly right. I, I remember now you're bringing it back to me. We would always focus on you know uh, on the plans of, of of sort of you know progressive Californian uh, you know urban governor saying we're going to build this thing, and 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 you're right, like it's it's un, just like it's not doable. And you know it, it it gets to a different question, which I think is is I think lurking in your piece, and it's it's lurking in, in other stuff you've written. Right? Is is that it's 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 largely this this uh, idea that, well, you know, I've been to Italy and I've been to France and their trains are great and the Chinese are getting high speed trains. We need high speed trains, too. And 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 maybe it's it's merely cultural and political, but maybe it's also just the scale of the place that it just doesn't make sense. So it's this it's this constant desire to emulate the European as some kind of advanced thing. Um, that that leads us to down these sort of blind alleys. Maybe there there are better solutions for California than building a high speed train also, between who, San Francisco and LA. Who are these, pe who are these people who are like dying to like take the train on a regular basis from San Francisco to LA? I mean, this is like catering to a need that is non-existent. Like if there were Nick Burns I, for one. I, I went to school. You know, I went to college in the Bay. I'm from Southern California. I. Uh, um, I would, I would love to take a train. I like, uh, you know, I like watching the countryside go by. Uh, yeah, I'm it's taking nice. a train it would to be... Vermont in a few weeks, and I'm very excited to just look at some trees for, for a long exactly. time. Exactly. 
you're you're putting your finger on it. It would be nice to have. It would be pleasant, but it, it would, would it be, be economical? Would it actually I mean, be good? I mean, in California, <laughs> perhaps not. I mean, because I mean, the problem in California is, um, I, I feel like it, I, I, you know, uh, I'm sure this will be um, taken up by the, the, you know, urban policy and transit experts and on, you know, the, the, the transit expert crew on Twitter or what have you. But I mean, my, my impression is, is that it's basically kind of a class the class thing is that California is totally dominated by uh, car owning homeowners. And um, hmm. uh, it's kind of a car owning, homeowning, you know, uh, kind of middle class uh, and a kind of increasingly numerous, but still quite politically marginalized kind of underclass that, that um, you know, that, that doesn't own homes and doesn't own a car. And, um, the, uh, you know, the, the fact that most people, um, who are middle-class and above, you know, wouldn't use a train cause they have cars means that there's just not, uh, not a will to construct these things. And that, you know, the public services, the public transit services that do exist, um, uh, you know, buses and, um, the subway in LA has gotten a lot better, but, um, you know, they have problems with ridership and they have problems with safety um, because everyone in the middle class and above doesn't use it. Uh, it's, it's, it's... But, but but right. You know, like so the, the traditional then then, you know, plaint of all of us, uh, you know, Europe lusting Americans is is uh, goddamn Eisenhower and his and his highway project. And, uh, you know, making Americans wedded to cars and you see it now with with all the, you know, green talk and climate change is I just saw an article in the FT was saying, uh, you know, Europeans are tightening their belts and learning how to conserve while Americans, you know, <laughs> feasting at the pump or something like that was a was a title. And there's a lot of problems with that article. But, um, you know, the, the the flip side of it, of course, is and this, again, gets a, a something about America is that it's always been about space, about having your own land and your own thing, right? Absolutely. Which is very different from from an overcrowded, overcapacitated Europe. Um, and and as a result, you know, you can you can say like, goddamn Eisenhower, but Eisenhower was doing the the will of the American people is is opening up the country. So in fact, there's the opportunity for everyone to be able to have their own house. Right. And you might say this is this is you know against the planet and evil and but it's American. It is like the most quintessentially American thing. So it's fair to say what you said right there about California. It's dominated by you know people who have houses and cars. But like that is America. Oh, it's not just California. It's it's people having houses and cars. Yes. Right? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, I'm. This is a point I think I'm often making. Um, is that. Um, you know, uh, it's it's the view of the kind of uh, you know Yimby squad, uh, as you say that that Eisenhower doomed us with the highway system. But the fact is that the car is kind of quintessential uh, piece of American technology. It's it's a piece of technology that is just made for Americans to love. It's everything that Americans love about things. It's property. It's uh, movable, and it um, is kind of atomizing uh it's it's individualistic it's um a little self-contained bubble that you can own if you have money and you can use to move yourself around and you don't have to ask anybody permission uh to to use it um 
the only kind of constraint on your ability to go different places in it is where there are roads. Uh, and they don't close the roads at any sort of set time. You know, trains are 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 a very you know nineteenth century European piece of technology. Obviously, we had trains here in the nineteenth century too. But but it's you know it's sort of um, there's a bureaucratic committee that uh, you know runs the trains and and puts them certain places and not others and runs them at certain times and not others and checks your ticket and um, uh, you know it's just not something that 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 California that well, Californians, yes, but Americans too, in general, um, uh, really, really are, are, are uh, sort of programmed to like quite as much. Uh, so I think, I think getting rid of the car is going to be an uphill battle. Um, and, um, you know, frankly, I, again, I would, I think it's, I think it would be pleasant if we had a couple more trains. And I think, I think, especially with the like absurd budget uh, surplus that, that California has and is going to spend on on everything except the, uh, the train. Uh, I, th I think we could we could we could do that, and it would it would be fine. Um, but in general, it just seems much more likely to me that the way uh, you know, kind of American, um, you know, transportation will change in coming decades. It's, we're we're much more likely to be living in a um, electric car world than a you know a world in which all of America looks like uh, the Acela corridor. God help me. I was just on the Acela. What a nightmare that thing is also. I mean, can't even pull that one off, right? Oh, so so on on atomizing, um, the, you had another really excellent piece in uh, American Affairs. Uh, how recently did that come out, Nick? That was like... Uh, it was in May. Recent, in any case. It was in May. Uh, it was about the university. Um, I I just read it before we, we, uh, we started recording, and it's... It's it's a really ambitious attempt to try and sort of I, I think wrap uh, our heads around like what's going on or gone wrong at the university, um, but but there also I think there's this dynamic that we we're just sketching out here about how you know uh, there there's you know a lot of what stands in for the modern American university is is imported from Europe and actually as traces its way to sort of medieval institutions and this how these like medieval traditions are somehow shaping. And in fact, informing the kind of political impulses of um, um, the modern university that breeds kind of wokeness and and stuff like that. It's just interesting, though. That that I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe talk a little bit about um, atomization and community and how you see that. I, it's one thing that sort of comes out in the in that essay um, is. I mean, your criticism is, I think, there that 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 the university, in some ways, is not reflective of America and this American sort of drive to democracy, and is somehow stultified in the European model. I, I know that's 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 flattening the essay too much. It's much richer than that. But I don't know. Is there something to that also that the sort of I don't know the European influence here is again maladapted and and being twisted. Uh, in this sort of modern American context? Yeah, I think that's that's basically my view. Um, yeah, the piece I try to trace the history of the university from its medieval origins um, through uh, German reforms in the 19th century that basically kind of created the model of the modern research university um, to the contemporary American university. I think a lot of people don't understand that the modern American university is based on German models. I, everyone sort of in... Um, you know, everyone who's sort of in the field of the history of the university, which is a surprisingly small field, by the way, um, not very many academics, um, 
write books, especially not for general audiences, about the history of the university. And when they do, it's kind of hagiographic studies of their university frequently. Uh, I, I think that's but, no but, coincidence. But but I but Nick, why 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 is wokeness not not like so? It's it's that perversion of importing Europe into America again to boil down the, exactly. the piece too much. But it's it's in, the perversion of importing a uh, a European model that like perhaps high speed trains works in Europe, but doesn't necessarily apply to us. But somehow it breeds this this kind of wokeness culture that that doesn't manifest. In Europe, necessarily, in the same sort of way, even though there we are exporting wokeness to them, and it's getting there. It, it wasn't born in European universities. What what's how, 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 what's that about? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a complicated thing, but I that that is basically kind of the theory that I came to is that um, um, you know, the car is a very American piece of technology, uh, and the university, uh, which in a way is also a piece of technology, also a form of political organization. Um, is not, to my view, um, really uh, a very American thing. And it's, it's been it's been adapted very successfully to the American context. And there are elements of it that do make sense, um, like uh, um, uh, the way that universities function as kind of self-contained communities um, that are, uh, you know, quite. Uh, despite a lot of universities' rhetoric about, you know, sort of having democratic values or doing community outreach or whatever, they're, they're quite, um, you know, dramatically set off from their surrounding communities. Um, and it's, it's, very it's very noticeable. Obviously, in rural universities, it look like monasteries, suburban universities um, that, uh, you know, you can even sort of see from a plane are very different from their surroundings. And urban universities where, You've got these security guards, you know, guarding the entrance, you know, uh, lest any sort of, uh, you know, person, you know, dweller of, of, of the inner city, uh, you know, enter these, these hallowed gates. Um, but I think the, and, you know, having, having sort of, um, communities with, with very intense beliefs within their ranks that, uh, don't look, uh, kindly on outsiders is obviously a, a kind of American tradition too. A religious American tradition. Um, you think of, it, uh, I don't know, Mennonites or something. Uh, and in some way, like, uh, you know, people in the American university today are not infinitely unlike uh, Mennonites. But, yeah, the, but in another the university way... university is basically like an intentional community. I mean, when I think oh, now yes. about Rod, Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option, where he talks about Christian um, intentional communities, but we don't tend to think of the university and the campus as a kind of liberal intentional community, but in some ways it is that. And I like how in, in your essay, yeah, yeah. And in your essay, I like that you make the point that, you know, when, when a growing number of Americans spend time on a campus for four years, they learn habits that are actually quite contrary to broader society. So for example, if you, in most university, most universities are walkable, so then they 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 leave the university and they find out that most of America is not walkable. Then you need you need a car basically. But there's a number of examples like that. That and I think you use the word deform. That in some ways the university deforms young Americans and doesn't put them in good stead for the outside world. That is yeah. That's that's the sense I have, and that that has a lot to do I think too with um, 
you know, the demands that people have for European style high speed trains um, and walkable communities. Um, I, you know, there's a frequent there's a frequent remark that you hear on Twitter that Americans love college so much because it's the one time that they have walkable communities. Uh, but I think in some ways it, the opposite is actually true. It's that, you know, a certain kind of college educated, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of Yimby um, uh, Twitter Define user. Define Yimby for our uninitiated oh, it's, um, people. It's, it's, it's yes in my backyard. Um, people who... Uh, as opposed to NIMBY, right? As opposed right? to not in my backyard or NIMBY, basically people who are very... Um, kind of active proponents of um of densification and mixed use um uh sort of uh zoning and reforms to zoning making zoning less restrictive so you can build uh you know commercial build com commercial buildings and residential buildings in the same area and um it's it's a kind of um uh it's a kind of group of people who think that they've found kind of the, the nail, uh, a hammer that, uh, that can sort of, um, pound down all the nails of, uh, uh, of the representing the problems of, uh, American cities. But, but I think a lot of these, these people, it's sort of the opposite. It's, um, it's that they want walkable communities because they went to college. Um, and after living for four years or, you know, if you went to grad school, maybe, uh, 10 years in, uh, you know, in a, <laughs> which is a long time in a place that's basically structured radically different differently from the society that you're going to spend the rest of your life in, uh, you know, where you, most places you need a car to get around, um, you're going to be kind of alienated and, and think that the society should, should change. Um, but I'm not convinced that a lot of people, um, who, uh, you know, live the way that most Americans live, uh, want it to change. I think a lot of Americans who, live in suburbs, like living in suburbs, um, especially if they haven't been to college, um, in which case they haven't, um, you know, they haven't spent formative years in a place that's structured very differently. That's, that's just the way things are to um, a lot of people in this country. And I think a lot of people don't feel like there's a, a huge problem with that that needs to be corrected yeah let's be on you know so, the, Shad, let, if, let me press you really quickly shoddy on this one thing though because i think you just ra raised something really interesting uh you've always been sympathetic to rod Dreher's intentional communities but i think we're concluding here that this is profoundly un-american okay it's an interesting <laughs> point actually why do i why do yeah. i sympathize with one intentional community and not the other i guess um uh well universities Universities aren't, first of all, they're not permanent intentional communities. I mean, people aren't raising families for the most part. And it, so it's a temporary, it's, I, I feel like the fact that, yeah, students, yeah. The yeah. fact that one is temporary and one is meant to be a lasting community that one builds and you set different foundations and then you stick to those foundations. I think Americans should be able to do that. But when it's done, but do we really need, I don't know how many universities are in America, probably th you know thousands. Do we really need thousands of these f intentional communities that have hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people in them? Do we really need that? And what purpose is it serving? Where I think if you're part of a, a vaguely religious, a, a somewhat persecuted religious group, not to say that Christian conservatives are persecuted, but they are in some sense 
strangers to mainstream culture and are not allowed entry into mainstream culture as defined by liberal elites. So they need to develop alternative institutions. I'm not sure what the argument is for liberals developing alternative institutions for themselves when they themselves dominate the culture. Yeah. So here's 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 the interesting thing. Let me let me ask you, Nick, this. But I think here here's one way to think about it. As a you know, I I'm just not a fan of 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 very broadly a lot of this kind of uh, um, you know, whatever this this kind of, a lot of these trends on the right now about you know rediscovering. I think there's there's always been a conservative tendency to try and sort of like recapture some kind of America that was, and I think that's what's behind. Rod Dreher's, uh intentional communities as well. It's like America as we know it is, is in fact is like gone. It's being destroyed, as you said, Shadi, by you know liberal institutions that are dominating, and we're excluded from them. We need to rebuild something. But I think again, going back to your essay, Nick, about America as it is, as a sort of like restless, churning thing. I think it. it, it Ultimately, the, the truth of America is that the churn isn't just in New York City. It's as you said yourself, New York City is not is not the whole country. And and in fact, the churn permeates all of America, even, quote unquote, real America. And, you know, it's 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 that 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 restlessness is everywhere. There's space that you can still do your own thing. And, and you know, in that sense, whatever, like if 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 Rod wants to go build a, a commune somewhere and, you know, that that's also very American. But at the same time, it's 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 not there's something quintessentially American about exposing yourself to that churn wherever it is, whether it's cultural churn and this kind of like, you know, high elite kind of stuff and slumming it like they do in New York, or whether it's, you know, living in 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 the heartland elsewhere where there's constant turmoil, constant turnover, constant change, communities rise and die, uh, suburbs, new, new uh, waves of uh, immigrants or migrants from other parts of the country come in and transform communities. There's something there's something un-American about a certain kind of conservatism that wants to preserve something that may never have really existed, I guess, is my sort of right. instinct against Rod and those people. Well, I don't know, Nick. What well, do you think? to get back to the difference or potential difference between um, the university and other forms of intentional communities, I think uh, a lot of what you've said applies to that in a way um, that um, you know, religious communities in America have a similar logic to capitalism in America that, you know, they have to draw adherence um, and grow uh, constantly or else they'll kind of be extinguished. So there's a kind of restlessness there too. Um, but the university, um, you know, uh, has a kind of a different logic. It, you know, it's medieval origins kind of lead it toward um, an attitude that's more uh, kind of taking a distance from the world is sort of a, you know, it has still something of its monastic origins, you know, like uh, a kind of stable refuge from the world, um, a kind of quiet place where you can contemplate. Um, and also, you know, one where if you're a tenured professor, you have complete, uh, you know, uh, job security for life. It's, uh, uh, it's a place that awards privileges um, in the original kind of medieval sense. And it's also a place that is internally politically organized hierarchically unlike you know unlike american society um which is you know at least supposed to be um egalitarian and democratic um and representative um i guess uh um at the very least representative but but universities aren't representative and they're not egalitarian you have students and they're governed by people who aren't students they're not 
you know, you're not governed um, by representatives drawn from among your, uh, you, you know, from from among people. You're governed by a distinct body, uh, you know, the, the, the university administration. And um, there are also gradations among graduate students, professors, you know, assistant professor, associate professor, tenure, chairs. There's, there's unlimited numbers of gradations of rank, which are, you know, obviously medieval and um, are, you know, very different from the kind of... Um, uh, from the way that the rest of American society is set up, where even when we do have inequalities, and we certainly do, we try to mask them. We try to um, give people titles that don't show that they actually have power over other people. Um, we try to downplay it. The university doesn't try to downplay that. And I think that the problem, the the thing that originates all of the distortions that I try to talk about in this essay um, is that uh, you know, people in the university, um, academics um, especially, have this kind of uh, this kind of parrot. They're kind of facing this paradox where the institutional structure around them um, uh, is is hierarchical and it's set off from society. Um, it's 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 geared in this kind of contemplative monastic direction. But they're Americans, um, and so they have these egalitarian instincts and they have this rest they have these restless instincts and so um in some way like the the university is a place where uh people have you know acquire some kind of cognitive dissonance and um it's it's the attempt to kind of reckon with that to be an american democrat and to have liberal values in a place that's very hierarchical and very shut off from society uh that introduces the kind of um uh you know, weird tensions and tendency to kind of um, uh, kind of think in, in, in strange ways that, that leads to, you know, wokeism and, and all the rest of it. Um, so, so, Nick, you would draw direct. So I was about to ask you this. I mean, that because one of the reasons that wokeness seems to be so compelling to folks who teach on campuses or live on campus is is because to talk about the lack of equality and the fact that the university is hierarchical and is determined by privilege would lead to a reckoning with the actual base structures of the university and to instead focus on diversity um, and then have all these DEI institutions at universities, diversity, what is it? Diversity, diversity equity, equity and, and inclusion. inclusion. Yeah, it, I mean, wokeness is a way to distract from structural problems, and I, you know, I think that um, Sam Hasselby makes this argument a lot on Twitter. Um, that if love that if, guy, yeah, yeah, he's great. That if you really wanted to have, if these people were actual leftists, they would be focusing on the structure of the university, but they don't. So, do right. you, you draw that? Do you feel like that that is very much a direct link? Obviously, people aren't thinking about it in that way consciously, but in some ways they're channeled in that direction. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the um, the tendency to um, uh, to conceive of uh, social justice in terms of a the internal makeup of these organizations, right? Um, uh, what 
I mean, it's kind of like visual representation or something. Uh, it's like um, uh, the idea that uh, how, you know, um, egalitarian an institution is depends on um, demographic facts about its members and not its relationship to society or its internal political organization. Um, that's that's definitely a consequence of this of this paradox. Um, and, and another consequence is is the tendency to focus on on language, right? Um, rather than on kind of uh, material things, um, the focus on on terms, uh, you know, use there's a great uh, piece, um, which which I thought was extremely kind of cautious and treading on eggshells um, to make its point, which I thought was sort of obviously true, but it's still Sam Adler Bell's piece. Exactly. Yes. It's still in, in, it provoked the, you know, a furious response from, uh, mostly from professors, which I think, uh, also proves, (laughs) proves the point. I mean, with the point of course, is that, um, you know, people in the university, um, uh, you know, get very, uh, worked up about people in the university, people who have been educated in the university on the left get very worked up about, uh, language in terms, um, and um, this can get in the way of uh, crafting uh, appeals to a broader range of people. And more seriously, even than that, it, it, it really keeps people from, from thinking about um, material conditions, uh, which, which, you know, if you're concerned about social justice, should be, should be your number one concern. So Nick, I, we're 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 getting to the point we're gonna I think uh, shift for our, our our paying subscribers, and I think it's a it's a it's a it's a good point to pivot to another essay, which quite frankly I was surprised, just you know knowing knowing what you generally write on. Um, it was an essay in uh, it was the New Statesman, I think. Um, it was about Ukraine and realism and foreign policy, which I don't know. I, maybe I, I'm I'm not up to on, on all your writing, but it, it's I, I was surprised to see. Uh, you writing on that? I mean, do you, do you write about foreign policy in general, or is that was that sort of a something you were inspired to do for a second there? Um, I I thought that I should write something about about the war in Ukraine after it broke out, um, especially because yeah. um, uh, because I I thought I had something to add to the conversation through uh, through Thucydides. Um, the- yeah. Well, so so you know, just to to frame it and just to continue the conversation on this sort of uh, you know. Um, American versus European thing. I think one way to to maybe summarize your essay, and I think it's it's a way that that I think Shadi would would very much agree with, uh, but I might have some bones with it. Is uh, is that 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 you know, in a way, there's a kind of 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 almost uh, <laughs> Europeanist rationalism. Uh, I don't know if rationalism is the right word, but but that that. John Mearsheimer, who you go after in the in the piece, um, and that's sort of this modern breed of, of American realist foreign policy people, it's just not applicable to how America and American democracy works and how foreign policy is done. There's something again, maybe you know, you don't you don't go there, but I mean, to extend the earlier conversation, there's something foreign. Realism about is un-American. It, to American to the Let's American. Let's be straight experience. up. It's American. un-American. <laughs> Realism is un-American. I, I don't know if you'd agree fully with that, Nick, but like, I mean, that's sort of a an underlying theme in that essay, right? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I might not put it quite so strongly, but um, that's not totally... <laughs> shoddy wood, not, shoddy wood for well, sure. I don't think it's totally wrong. I mean, um, and I, but I, I think it's important to not be naive about that. Um, like you could, you could say that that's the case because Americans are simply, um, you know, upstanding people. I wouldn't put it quite that way. I would just say that Americans are people who are very easily 
who are very susceptible to moral arguments, put it that way. Um, and it's a fact. Like shoddy. <laughs> well, it's a fact about our national character, I think. Um, and I think uh, there's a great, um, the, the, uh, it's kind of a ham-handed film, um, but it does make this point very well. Uh, the, the Third Man, um, which uh, Graham, mm. Graham Greene wrote the script for. I think I have that right. Um, and um, uh, Graham Greene, you know, uh, re- a big critic of, of Americans, um, but also a, a keen observer of, of the way the American mind works. And, and in, this, in this movie, um, you know, this uh, American character is uh, persuaded to do all kinds of things that are like manifestly um, uh, bad for his self-interest. Um, uh, when people come up to him and, and make some kind of moral argument, um, at one point there's like uh, the the um, the British character tells him about how uh, this you know bad American guy is uh, um, stealing like penicillin from us from sick infants in the hospital which it's like okay graham green like you could have thought of something a little bit more subtle than that um but and but you know uh the american you know falls for that uh hook line and sinker um it's i don't think it's ever really clear in the movie if that's exactly true or not but um the american is you know convinced to um uh to endanger himself to uh you know punish this guy for stealing the uh penicillin from the dying kids or whatever and i, I think uh, he doesn't he doesn't ask for any proof of of that this is actually happening you know he just hears it and he's like oh my god well we have to you know we have to do away with this guy and i think that i think that kind of gets to it a little bit i mean my argument kind of in the piece is that um um is that um I think this is this is Thucydides point too. Uh, like people often think about Thucydides as someone who advocates um, a kind of cold hearted, uh, you know, cold eyed um, evaluation of of self-interest in um, in in politics, in foreign policy, especially. But I don't think that that's exactly what he's advocating. Um, there were people in his history who act this way but good things don't always happen to them when they do and i think um uh i think looking closely at at the text what he's what he's more trying to tell us is that um uh arguments about justice and arguments about self-interest are are different kinds of arguments that people make to convince people to do something and um you have to be um you have to be careful uh, you have to evaluate these um, different arguments very carefully because both uh, both can get you in real trouble. Um, and um, and um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, th- I think um, the appeal of arguments based on justice is always going to be there, and um, and that's sort of part of politics and therefore part of war that you can never that you can never get away from so to just say oh well, we should simply make these decisions um uh you know based on some kind of calculation of self-interest and leave justice out of it um that in a way is a utopian i mean the sense in which realism is american is that it's utopian um and it is actually mm-hmm. far too optimistic that humans are far too um you know, kind of fallible, complicated, whatever, um, 
to be able to fully cast aside um, arguments about justice. That's especially true about Americans, but it's true of all people. And, you know, whether that's and it's also true whether you live in a democracy or not. I mean, it's especially true in a democracy, right? Because um, I think as we've as the analysts of American foreign policy have shown, um, wars that the American public don't think are justified can't be sustained. Um, but um, but it's also true in authoritarian countries, um, because in the ruling circle, um, you're going to have people who um, are moved by ideas of justice, too. That doesn't mean that they won't um, countenance horrific repression um, and, you know, sign off on the murder um, of, uh, you know, however many uh, innocent people. But it means that they will make those decisions um, can probably convinced at some level, or at least trying to convince themselves that they are doing the just thing. Um, and the the debates that you know we never we may never be privy to, but the debates that nonetheless uh, undoubtedly happen behind the scenes of every military junta or what have you um, about whether you know um, whether to kill all the students at the 1968 Plata Loco massacre in in Mexico City, you know whether. Uh, to repress the student protests in Tiananmen Square, you know, those um, high level, um, you know, politicians who are debating how to react to that, um, they're making arguments about justice, too, as well as about self-interest. And um, and that's huh. that's what the outcome, uh, you know, of 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 those debates comes to. It's it's a weird and twisted thing. But that's that's a lot of what Thucydides book is about is how arguments about interest, but also arguments about justice can be wielded to defend um, even the most ghastly behavior. These, I mean, go shoddy, because I was going <laughs> to prompt you on this, you know, because honestly, what, what I like about this is that I, I think it does. I, I again, I've had this going for years now with shoddy about this sort of stuff. And I think your instinct shoddy is right, is that is that there's the, the there's uh, that there's something inherently uh, undemocratic about realism. Undemocratic. Um, well, that 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 basically that the that it's you know sort of moral concerns are, are properly expressed by you know and and it's 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 only unaccountable sort of elites that can have the luxury of practicing a kind of cold blooded realism. Which Nick, I mean, the counter is that realism, insofar as it ever existed in practice, existed in continental Europe in the 19th century, right? I mean, you really had the sort of Metternich period, and you had these these elites fighting Napoleon and all the democratic changes he did bring to the continent uh, on the side of autocracy. And that was the most brilliant period of sort of realpolitik actually happening, right? Until Bismarck took it too far, and it was unsustainable. Although, yeah, I don't know, Shadi, first, before, before I, Nick jumps in, what's your instinct that, on but this? I'll wait, I'll wait for Shadi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, um, that is not my primary concern about realism, that it's it's not representative of the people. I mean, that's that's true, but th that's not the fundamental concern. I think that my fundamental concern is that realism is wrong about human nature in a very foundational sense. And, and you know, Nick sort of touched on that just now that um, this idea that self-interest is only about material or economic or measurable, tangible concerns, why morality is part of self-interest. Um, why is morality or why are values or ideals cordoned off and treated as something 
that is not under the realm of interest. That seems to me to be a very arbitrary distinction. And I've always argued that from an American perspective, interests and ideals are intertwined. They're extremely difficult, if not impossible, to separate. And I would also say that it's in America's national interest to be moral. That's the way that I sort of collapse the two where they become one. Um, obviously, there are tensions and trade-offs if you look at short-term and long-term, and and you can measure those things. But ultimately, if we're talking about America in a broader historical sweep, you know, there's no way to account for U.S. U.S. power without accounting for how American power is justified, and it is often justified in moral terms. I just don't know how you escape that. And um, and I and the idea that states can be rational, the idea that individuals can be rational, is just simply not true. And I think that. Realism seems to be very out of step with the times because I think that more and more people are understanding that this idea of the rational, of being rational is simply not accurate because we're seeing perpetually, you know, every minute of a day, if we look closely enough, that humans are acting against their own quote unquote self-interest. And that that's why, I mean, what's the matter with Kansas? I mean, some, you know, some of our listeners might remember that there was this whole thing where, you know, liberals would attack Republicans for voting against their interests. Actually, they probably know that they almost certainly still do that now, but it's an absurd argument. Who are liberals to judge whether or not Republicans are acting in their own interests? How would liberals have more insight into other people's interests more than the people themselves? Anyway. Well, and of course, the tail, the the other side of that, of course, um, is that uh, the people who often tell you, uh, the people who often tell me uh, that uh, Republican voters are voting against their own self interest, um, tend to be uh, wealthy Democratic voters. And I simply <laughs> yeah. reply to them, well, "You are voting for the party that wants to raise your taxes. What are you doing?" And of course, they say, <laughs> "Well, you know, it's because it's because how could I vote for this racist, you know, horrible anti-democratic party?" And then I, to which I respond, "Ah, so it's almost as if your vote is is sort of more based on values than your own self-interest." Now, now, what <laughs> what if I told you? <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, um, on. But uh, on um, uh, the 19th century, I read and reviewed uh, for the New Statesman a few months ago, um, Mark Mazower's book on the Greek Revolution, which is um, extremely dense, but excellent. Um, and I encourage... He's awesome. I encourage everyone He's to awesome, read it yeah. um, or or read a review, perhaps mine, uh, if you haven't the time. Uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, but but it's it's it's... It's fascinating, and it, it gets into. Um, I wish it got into more, uh, but it does get into uh, the Greek Revolution as kind of international cause, uh, and it has a lot in common with the international response to uh, the war in Ukraine. But notably, it was the first time something like this happened. It was the first time in world history that um, that um, you know the affairs of another country kind of became a political issue in civil society. Civil society is kind of in its uh, early stages in, in Europe. And um, what happened was that there was this kind of um, 
civil society campaign on behalf of the, these plucky Greeks who were standing up to, you know, these these uh, horrible backwards um, barbaric uh, Ottoman Turks. Um, the Turk. The Turk. Yeah. And um, uh, of course, you know, um, of course, the Greeks were terribly oppressed uh, by the Turks. Uh, of course, there were also massacres on both sides. Um, but and, um, you know, the, the, the Turkish ones, which which were very ghastly, got more press in, in Western Europe. But um, uh, but what, what sort of happened is that guys like Metternich, um, the heads of of and uh, uh, heads of state in in Western Europe, wanted to, you know, kind of keep their hands off, didn't want to disturb the balance of power. They they thought correctly, as it turned out, that, um, you know, intervening in um, the affairs of the Ottoman Empire and, you know, especially if it were to detach part of, uh, of the Ottoman Empire would open up all sorts of very destabilizing questions about who would get who would get the territory, who would who would have influence over it that could upset the balance of power. And, you know, many the Eastern question. Eastern, yeah, yeah. So, so, so this is kind of the seeds of the destruction of um, uh, of, of the kind of uh, peace based on balance of power in, in the 19th century. It, it took a long time to really turn into a full scale war, but that was the beginning of it. Um, and, and what happened was the, the Western powers were eventually persuaded to intervene um, uh, by these civil society campaigns that were all based on. Um, you know, uh, the Greeks are so, you know, we got to support the Greeks and, and their, you know, their cause is just. Um, and, and Nick, let me let me just ask you really quickly on this, because it, 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 you know, I, I haven't read Mazar's book uh, and I'm only tangentially sort of very broadly aware of it. The extent to which I understand it, though, is that this was very much an English thing and an American thing. It was like the Anglo-Protestant thing that they latched onto the Greek cause tied it to uh, a mythical version of democracy. That is, this is the cradle of democracy against the barbarian Ottoman Islam over there. Um, and it's a fight for freedom. Quite frankly, you see a lot of this stuff talked about Ukraine these days. They're they're dying for our freedoms. This is a, a civilizational fight against, you know, for freedoms, for our way of life. Many make that case. So America's not making that case. Biden's not going that far. Um it was was am I am I getting that wrong? Was it broader than just sort of the Anglo Anglo Protestant countries? The, was it a, a thing in France and Germany as the well? The French were quite involved in it as well. Uh, Germany okay. wasn't All unified right. yet, so uh, they didn't really matter right, as course. much um, at that time. Yeah, but I guess France stands to reason. I mean, it's Napoleon, and and it was right after the revolution, so you know, still that sort of sense of of democracy and people on the march. Maybe well, that. not quite. It was it was the Bourbons who were in charge. It was the Restoration. Of course, um, yeah. And uh, the restoration what there. That, it was actually this is actually super interesting. Um, what France, in some ways, was kind of the turning point that they uh, the Bourbons had been the kind of most pro Ottoman um, of the great powers. And um, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to, you know, it wasn't very, it wasn't democratic. There was a lot of press censorship, um, and this was a conservative regime, a reaction against, uh, uh, against the revolution in Napoleon. But what we actually, but there was, you know, but they hadn't been able to get rid of civil society. Civil society was still active, and um, you know, there were these 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 people advocating on behalf of the Greeks. And what actually swayed it was um, Chateaubriand, who was this. Um, uh, romantic reactionary um, who had written this book in defense of Christianity uh, was kind of a, a celebrity uh, a success, a very popular conservative writer. He kind of became, if you will, the first neocon um, 
Mm. Uh, by writing this pamphlet um, that described why, as a conservative, you should back the Greek cause. Because up to that point, it had been kind of associated with left-wing politics. And the Bourbons were um, uh, were against it in part because it was associated with kind of radical politics. Um, the the Greek the Greek society that had that had kind of launched the the revolt um, was influenced by the French Revolution. Um, but um, Chateaubriand, you know, sort of described this as a Christian struggle um, and explained why conservatives should support it too. And the pamphlet was so successful, and so many people in the Bourbons in a circle read it that they uh, not only started to be persuaded, but um, in the end, I think uh, Maswer argues the reason why um, Metternich decided to support intervention was that um, the leaders came to the conclusion that a the um, destabilizing effects um, for their for civil society and for their popularity and the possible um, you know continued support for their regimes would be threatened by a, co- a total Greek defeat. I mean, I obviously think of Ukraine here, too, um, yeah. that that if the Greeks really were crushed and massacred by the Turks, um, the effect would be so destabilizing, you know, would, would be destabilizing enough um, for them that it, it would actually let. So Metternich changed his mind because he became convinced that um, actually the thing that would more effectively um, preserve peace and the balance of power in Europe was to intervene. Um, that was what did it. And I think that illustrates my point pretty well. It's that um, it's it's not that, um, uh, how to put it, it's, it's not so much that, um, uh, if you like, it's kind of a, a, an interpretation of arguments about justice through the prism of self-interest. That is to say, it's hmm. not so much that people make, that nations make decisions uh, because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, it's that people talking about what the right thing to do is influences nations' decisions, even if those decisions are made purely instrumentally. Um, that is, you sure. these these civil society campaigns that are based on what's right um, have an effect on um, on foreign policy, even if the people actually making the foreign policy decisions don't care about um lofty ideas of justice and so on obviously you know similar things happened uh with the vietnam war that um uh you know the decision was made to uh withdraw american troops you know not because um people at the highest level were convinced um that it was the wrong thing but just because it became so such a, a kind of politically costly thing that it became expedient uh not to do so but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really pleased you've given me something here against Shadi about, like, you know, the oppressed Christians against the, the evil Ottoman Turk. That's a set of values you need to fight for. The conservative case for, for intervention being one of, of, you know, liberating Christians from, you know, Muslim oppression. Uh, <laughs> we, we can table that one. Um, <laughs> but on, on the question of uh, morality, I, I, you know, just hearing you talk right now, Nick, I... So I, Demir won't like this, but I think I'd be comfortable saying that to not prioritize lofty conceptions of justice is itself a moral choice. Like at some basic level, every decision that is made has moral import. 
the idea that someone or a state or an institution can be quote unquote amoral. So instead of I am in front, just an A. So, and that suggests some idea of neutrality. And that's how I think someone like Mearsheimer conceives of himself. He'll say, oh, I'm not against morality. I just don't think morality should be considered in this context. I, he's basically saying I'm neutral. But I, I'm, I'm very skeptical of this idea of neutrality when it comes to anything that, um, that, that affects people's lives and, you know, a lot more than just, you know, lives, treasure, the future of nations. These are, these are, how can you, how can we have conversations about these things if not by acknowledging some kind of moral, moral implication or conception? Right. No, but but let me just jump into, you know, you wanted to table that question, Shadi. And I, what I liked about your description, Nick, here, though, is is in fact that that, you know, I and I think we probably all agree. I'm not I'm not some neutralist here and I'm not a Mearsheim, Mearsheim Marian. Uh, I find him kind of weirdly autistic, quite frankly, the way he argues a lot of these things. But it's it's but but Shadi, I mean, the what I object to. And what where I think you and I usually come to blows on this stuff is is this idea that that like of of my skepticism of the moral argument is its pretension to universality. And and I think you 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 side into that as well, a certain kind of universal humanism that we do this for this, that, the other thing. So I'm I'm latching on to this 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 wonderful Chateaubriand story. And in fact, the 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 case for, which of course I was aware of, but I never made the, the proper connection to to bludgeon sort of universalist neoconservatives with this is this is we need to protect Christians who are getting oppressed by the other the evil heretical Islam you know what I mean and I think you know that's values but it's not, that's that not universalist a, a though claim. that's particular no, exactly but but my argument is exactly that is that that basically you know all these sort of universal values I think it's it's very much an illusion people who claim to have universal values that's the flip side of 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 Mearsheimer's claim to universal reason of some sort. You still have access to some sort of claim, preposterous, preposterous claim to I've universal truth never, But Demir, how often values. do I, do, is, it, is it often where I use the word universal? In fact, oh, I don't you know, know if I you're, ever you're use that You're much more careful, word. but you talk, about, you talk about human rights, which implies <laughs> humanity and, and universal sort <laughs> well, of really? thing. No, yeah. that's not that. Yeah. So the, you're, you're making that leap. Human rights, you, yeah. You're assuming that when I talk about human rights, that I am making a universalist argument. What are human rights but a claim that there are certain rights that, that adhere to all humans and we know how best to protect them? That is a claim for intervention on the basis of human rights. If that rights. was the case, that people it's, wouldn't use the phrase universal human rights. The very fact that they append universal before human rights suggests that it is a qualifier. No, but universal human rights is 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 basically people. It's a mouthful, so they just say human rights when they mean universal human rights. Come on, man! Don't even don't even try and get out of this. No, one. no, no. Look, I, anyway, I'm Nick, we're <laughs> we're running out Nick, of time. Do you want to adjudicate this? Where, where do you come out um, on that? Yeah. I am. I am. I'm sorry to say, I'm more on Demir's side on this one. But I did oh, also want to say about um, realism. At least Mearsheimer's version is that it does have this problem with. Um, uh, you know, whether it's a normative or a positive theory, right? I mean, at it, it, yeah, one level, yeah. it's trying to say, this is the way that nations behave. And at another level, it's trying to say, this is the way nations should behave. Um, that, you yeah. know, to, um, 
uh, you know, uh, the U.S. shouldn't the, the U.S. is really influenced by the Israel lobby, but it shouldn't be right. That's the kind of subtext. Um, uh, yeah. And, and you know, the, the U.S. is making these decisions about Ukraine on the base of moral values and it shouldn't. But but that shouldn't, of course, is, you know, sort of moral. Um, and and so he, he can't really sort of come out and say that because um, uh, precisely for the reason that that, um, you know, the moral content is that you shouldn't have moral content, as it were. Yes. No, absolutely. Amen. Nick, this was such a pleasure. Uh, really good catching up, talking like this. Um, hope to have you on again in the future. Good luck with it. I'd love, yeah, to, thanks, Nick. Uh, love to talk with you guys again. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. This is, uh, this is a real treat.